Margaret McMillan, what has it meant to you in your life that you're the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George? Well, it's, it's, it's been nice in a way, I guess, to know that I have a famous ancestor. I never met him. Uh, by the way, before we go on, where do you live now and what do you do? I live in Toronto in Canada. And I'm a professor of history at the University of Toronto, and I've just become head of a college there. I'm, I'm called a provost, and so I guess it's like a principal. And um, I, I'm half administrator and half teacher. Where were you born? Toronto. How did your family get to Toronto? Well, my father was there for a couple of generations. My mother, who was Lloyd George's granddaughter, came to Canada in the summer of 1939 as a schoolgirl. It was sort of a present from her parents for leaving school, and she was going to go back and go to Cambridge University and, and study medicine. And she was in Canada in 1939, and the war broke out. And she quite literally couldn't get home. And so she stayed in Canada. She went to medical school in Toronto, and she met my father and never went back to England. On the cover, these three men, tell us about each one of them. Start with your great-grandfather, Lloyd George, there on the left. Lloyd George is a very controversial figure indeed. Um, he was from a very non-traditional background in those days for a British Prime Minister. He wasn't an upper-class aristocrat. He came from fairly humble origins in Wales. And he really was a self-made man. He was enormously energetic, enormously capable, and enormously charming. He could really charm the birds out of the trees, I think. Even people who, who didn't have any reason to like him would go into meetings with him and come out eating out of his hand. He was a great liberal, and he'd never been much interested in foreign policy. That was one of the curious things that he ended up having to do a lot of foreign policy. What he was interested in was domestic issues. I mean, he was interested in social welfare. He, he introduced the first old age pension. He was a controversial figure. There were a number of scandals around him, including a lot of scandals with women. But I think, you know, I've come to think that he really was a very great figure and although he didn't have much experience in foreign relations proved to be very adept at that the man in the middle um, George Clemenceau the French Prime Minister at the time was an old radical as well rather like Lloyd George although he came from a different background he came from a rather more aristocratic background he was someone who had seen France defeated first by Prussia in 1870. He'd been in Paris when the Prussians had encircled Paris. It was said that when he died, he wanted to be buried facing Germany because Germany, which Prussia became the heart of, was the great enemy of, of the French. He's often portrayed as vindictive, and I don't think that's true. I think he recognized that France would have to deal with Germany if Europe were to be a safe and stable place, but he was worried about German power. He was deeply cynical in some ways. He said about the League of Nations, which Woodrow Wilson, of course, was promoting, that I like it, but I don't believe in it. How old was he at the peace conference? Clemenceau would have been in his mid-70s. He was the oldest of the three big powers. How old was Lloyd George? Lloyd George was about 58, 59. And you say that Lloyd George had a mistress with him the entire time at the conference? Yes, Lloyd George had had a number of mistresses. I mean, he remained married to his first wife. And in some ways, I think they had a very good relationship. I mean, he, he went to see her every year. They spent a lot of time together, but he always had other women. And Frances Stevenson, a young woman who came initially to teach, um, I think it was to teach French to one of his daughters, ended up by becoming his secretary and his mistress, and really in a way became a second wife. And she came to Paris with him as his secretary, but clearly also was, was very much involved with him. We know this because she left a diary. And she was going to become the second uh, Mrs. Lloyd George when his first wife died in the, in the course of the Second World War. She was a very good thing for an historian because Lloyd George was notoriously badly organized. He, he never wrote letters. He threw letters away. His papers were a mess. And when she came on the scene in about 1916, she began tidying things up. And so the record gets a lot better after that. How old was he? 
Well, George was uh, late 50s, and she probably would have been in her early 20s. And how long, did, how long was Lloyd George the prime minister? Lloyd George was prime minister from the end of 1916 to 1922, and so six years. Very, very dominant figure. Eventually, he was head of a coalition government. Uh, he himself was a liberal, but during the war, when things were going very badly, a section of the conservatives recognized um, that they needed a new prime minister, and so did the liberals. And so he was put into office by a coalition. And in fact, most of his support came from the conservatives. The story of Clemenceau, this is right in the middle, it's, it's just a tangential story, although you say that he never cha he changed, never was the same again. He got shot. Yep. He got shot by a, by a man who was, I think, deranged. He was an anarchist, but he had sort of various confused ideas. And Clemenceau was coming out of his house one day, and I think it was in February 1919, and this man was, was sort of hiding behind a pillar and rushed out and fired at him several shots. And several of them shot, uh, struck Clemenceau. One ball, in fact, remained inside of him for the rest of his life. Clemenceau was amazingly tough. I mean, he was physically very brave. And people who went around to see him found him sitting up the next day saying, you know, a Frenchman who can't even aim shoot, shoot straight, I'm ashamed of him. Um, but people afterwards said, although he seemed to have made an amazing recovery, that he was tireder after that. He, he never had quite the same power of, of powers of concentration. Was he married? Clemenceau had been married. Um, I think technically he, he no longer was. He married an American woman. Clemenceau actually, perhaps rarely among French politicians of the time, had spent a lot of time in the United States. Um, he went to the States in the 18, um, early 1870s and actually taught at a girls' school somewhere up in the, in the Hudson Valley and um, learnt English quite well, had a great admiration for the United States and while he was in the United States married this, by all accounts, very pretty young woman but I don't think she had an easy time of in France. She never learned to speak French properly. She was left for long periods of time with Clemenceau's maiden aunts in a sort of gloomy chateau um, down in the Vendée where it rained the whole time. And the marriage eventually broke up and Clemenceau kept the children. How long was he in office? Clemenceau was in office from 1916 till the end of 1919. Um, he'd been briefly prime minister before the war and then he became prime minister again in the middle of the second, in the middle of the first world war. Woodrow Wilson's the other man on this cover. Yeah, well, Woodrow Wilson is, is the one I find the most puzzling. I mean, he was, in many ways, an extraordinary figure, a great idealist, um, very a man of great vision. He was, in some ways, a great leader of the United States. I think he had a tremendous power for oratory, and he had an ability to inspire people. But he had these these failings. Um, he failed to understand that people could oppose him and not be wicked. I mean, he tended to think if you disagreed with him, there was something wrong with you. And it made him not very good at the usual cut and thrust and compromise of politics. And I think that in the end is, was part of his tragedy. He refused at the very end to compromise with the Republicans on his treaty. And it cost him very, very dear. Now, the one man that's not on this cover, and it was a council of four, as you point out, yeah. was Orlando. Who was Orlando? Orlando was the prime minister of Italy, and he was considered one of the big four, and, and the main, the body which did, made so many of the decisions. At Where the, is he in this picture? I just have to lean forward here. Um, Orlando's at the very end on the left-hand side, the man with white hair. But um, he was an Italian politician. He'd survived in Italian politics, which were very complicated, and he was very good at making what the Italians call combinazioni and deals. The Italians were not a major power. I mean, they, it was really by courtesy they were considered one of the big four, but they were not as powerful as Britain, France, or the United States, and they tended only to talk 
when it was matters that concerned them. And so they came with a very clear agenda and they tended not to worry about anything much else. What happened to them before the conference was over? Well, they got into a tremendous row. Um, they had claims. Italy had come into the war late and it basically came in looking for the best deal for itself. It, it thought of joining either side. In the end, it joined the Allies because the Allies could promise it more. And what the Italians wanted was that great swath of the east coast of the Adriatic, what is today um, Croatia and Slovenia, Croatia and, and Bosnia as you go from north to south. And the Italians wanted to claim a lot of that on the grounds that it had once been Italian and there were still Italian communities living there. Why they really wanted it was because they didn't want any power across the Adriatic that could be a menace to them. And the country that wanted it was the new country of Yugoslavia that, that had just emerged. The Italians had been promised a certain amount of that territory during the war by the British and the French, but they wanted even more. And so the real trouble, one of the real problems, and there were many problems at the peace conference, but one of the ones that really blew up was when the Italian claims were rejected by Woodrow Wilson, who said, look, I'm not giving you territory which doesn't have Italians in it. I don't care what promises were made during the war by the British and the French. That is not what I stand for. I stand for a different sort of diplomacy where people aren't given away against their will to people who, who to, to be ruled over by people of another ethnicity or nationality. And so the Italians, in a fury, said, all right, we're walking out. And it was a very crucial time of the peace conference. It was just around Easter 1919 as the German terms were being got ready. So the Italians walk out, which leaves a real problem. And is, are there going to be enough nations there to enforce their will on Germany? And so there's a huge sort of row. Woodrow Wilson is furious and decides to make an appeal directly to the Italian people. He believed that if he could speak directly to the Italian people, the Italians would, would see reason. And so he issued an open letter, and unfortunately the Italian populace by that point was in no mood to see reason. There was a huge nationalist fervor in, in Italy. At any rate, eventually what happened is the Allies made preparations, Britain, France, and, and the United States, to simply go on and try and make the treaty with Germany anyway. And the Italians... Um, came back rather reluctantly, but relations remained very, very bad. 31 nations, you say, attended this. Who yeah. just determined who was a delegate? Well, it was any nation that had been an ally um, or an associate during the, the, the First World War. What, the nations who came included um, all various parts of the British Empire, um, Italy, um, Belgium, uh, Portugal was there, a number of... of the Latin American countries, Brazil, for example, which had been on the American side, Japan, China, all these nations had fought in the First World War on the side of the Allies. The nations who didn't come, and this was later on to be an enormous point of controversy, were the ones who were defeated. The defeated nations expected that they would have the usual sort of peace conference that they'd had up to this point, where the defeated and the, and the victors sat down and hammered something out. And this never happened. Who were the defeated? The defeated were Germany, first of all. It had been the main linchpin in what were called the Central Powers. And then you had what had been Austria-Hungary, which by this point had broken up. And so you had a separate little Austria and a separate Hungary. They both were among the defeated. Then you had Bulgaria, which had fought with Germany and Austria-Hungary. And the final defeated nation was the Ottoman Empire, um, the Ottoman Turks, who controlled what is today Turkey and, again, most of the Arab Middle East. And none of those countries were invited to participate in the actual discussion? No, they were not invited. Uh, what happened, and this was really a mistake on the part of the Allies, 
the Allies assumed that they would need a preliminary sort of meeting to, to hammer out a common position. It took them so long to hammer out a common position that by the time they got it done, and it really wasn't done until the end of April 1919, that they really didn't dare sit down with the defeated nations um, because they thought, you know, if we try and open the whole thing again, we'll never get a peace. And so they called the Germans. The Germans were the first to be called. Called them to Paris and basically said, here are your terms. Take it or leave it. You have two weeks to send us in writing any comments you may have, but we may not pay any attention to them. And the Germans, of course, resented that bitterly. You tell me where I'm wrong, but reading your book, you get the impression that Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson and Clemenceau and others didn't like each other at all. I mean, there's constant carping back and forth. They had a funny relationship, and yes, they didn't like each other. I think, I mean, Lloyd George got on with most people. He was one of these people who would have furious rows and then not bear a grudge. Wilson was much more prickly and tended, once he, he conceived a dislike of someone, never really to get over it. Clemenceau didn't much like Lloyd George. He, he, he felt he was not a gentleman, and for Clemenceau this was important, and, and felt he was not very well educated. Um, Clemenceau didn't much like Woodrow Wilson either. I mean, what was his great joke? He said at one point in, in Paris, he said, I feel as if I'm sitting between Napoleon on the one side and Jesus Christ on the other. And he didn't mean either of those as a compliment. But, you know... They did have fights. I mean, there was a point at which Woodrow Wilson went white with anger and, and said to Clemenceau, I've never been so insulted. Clemenceau had accused him of being pro-German and, and marched out of the room. There was a point at which Lloyd George and Clemenceau got into a fight. I think it was over who got what in the Middle East. And Clemenceau, it is said, challenged Lloyd George to a duel, which luckily Lloyd George didn't fight because he would have been hopeless and Clemenceau had fought duels in his time but you know they developed a sort of fellowship because they met day in day out and they talked and we do have a very complete record of their conversations and, and they're quite touching moments where they sit around and they you know they just hashed out some enormous problem and then they talk to each other and they say you know, I have trouble sleeping yes says Clemenceau I do too you know I'm worrying about this and that and they, they compare notes and you know in a way they understand each other because nobody else has those pressures and nobody else has to make those decisions. This picture here of Woodrow Wilson arriving in Paris, uh, was this crowd there to greet him or was it to greet all the people coming for the conference? No, it was to greet Wilson. Um, was he popular? Wilson was enormously popular and he arrived in Europe in 1918, December 1918, and it was a Europe that was shattered by this war. I mean, I think in, in a funny way the First World War affects the Europeans even more than the Second World War. I mean, it was they had a sense that their civilization had inflicted irreparable damage on itself they'd lost these millions of young men I mean it's, it's oh, and men not just young men but men of military age it's, it's hard to imagine I mean the French lost either killed or wounded half their men of military age aid age um, civilizations people thought were collapsing Austria-Hungary had gone um, Germany had had a revolution there'd been a Russian revolution and so Wilson comes and I think people see him as, as the hope and a lot of people in Europe really believed in his ideas. They, they, they thought the League of Nations was a very good idea. You know, there was, it's often been portrayed in, in some of the histories as if there's this great gulf between Europe and the United States. The United States has this view of a better world and the Europeans will have none of it. And I just don't think it's true. Wilson was greeted as a savior. Huge crowds. His boat landed at Brest. The, the French port and people who were there said virtually every living being in Brest came out to welcome him and as his train went to Paris that night his doctor woke up in the night about three in the morning looked out and there were 
people, French people, standing along the railway tracks just watching the train go by. You know, those are, those are tremendous hope. And the stories that in, in, you know, Italian peasant houses, they had pictures of Wilson and they would cross themselves in front of the picture. I mean, this man carried tremendous hopes and expectations when he came to Europe. And, and the crowds that greeted him were tremendously enthusiastic. Go back to what we had in 1919, this Paris Peace Conference, the Versailles Treaty was signed. What today in this world that we're dealing with is a result of what happened there? Well, what's today a result is, um, well, Yugoslavia in a way was a result, but that no longer is with us, and then Czechoslovakia is no longer with us. A lot of the boundaries in the center of Europe are a result of that. What is probably the one that we notice most today is Iraq. Iraq was a product of the peace conference in 1919. And I mean Palestine. Palestine as well, um, the Jewish homeland, um, which then became the state of Israel. Is Tell the story about how Palestine became the Jewish homeland back in those years. Okay, well during the First World War, there was a lot of talk about a Jewish homeland. and By, by this point there was a world Zionist movement and, and Zionists, mainly in Europe, there wasn't much support for Zionism among American Jews at this point, argued they had to have their own homeland, that without their own homeland they would never be safe living in, a, in a, as a minority. And so there was a lot of talk about this, and gradually the British came around to supporting this idea. Now they did so partly for reasons of sentiment. Um, Lloyd George had grown up on the Bible, and so had Balfour, who was then his foreign secretary. And so they felt that this whole idea of the Jews going back to their ancient homeland was, was something that appealed enormously to them. But I think much more important was they felt it would help them during the war. They felt that world Jewry, as they called it in those days, was quite a powerful force, that if they could win it over to their side, it would make a difference in Germany where a lot of Jews lived. It might hamper the German war effort. It would also make a difference in North America, um, among the Jewish communities in North America. And so I think really for reasons of the war, much more than sentiment, although the sentiment was there, they decided to support the Jewish homeland. They very carefully, and this was the Balfour Declaration, which was written by Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary to Lord Rothschild, they very carefully did not mention a Jewish state or nation. They simply said a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. And like the Zionists themselves, they didn't really think the Arabs living in Palestine would mind. I and mean, they simply thought they were a negligible force who didn't have any particular uh, nationalism or any particular views on things. You said there were 700,000 Arabs there in Palestine at the time. Yeah. And how, how many Jews uh, lived there back in those years? Oh, 50 or 60,000. The Jews were less than 10%, or about 10% of the population. Now, some of them were the descendants of Jewish communities that had been there right from the diaspora, the original diaspora, after the, the fall of the temple in the first century AD. But some were European Jews who had moved back to Palestine before the First World War in this hopes of recreating a Jewish homeland. But the Jews were very much in a minority in 1918, 1919, when the war ended. The Arabs, it is true, were not particularly organized. I mean, a lot of them were farmers and didn't really have a strong sense. But even in 1919, you can see signs that not all Arabs are going to be happy about this. Another part of what you talk about in here, as we deal with today, is Lebanon, Syria, yeah. the Bekaa Valley, where they train a lot of terrorists, or yeah. all that. How did that all come about? And, and today, the Syrians, I guess we feel they control Lebanon uh, yeah. in one way or the other. Yeah. Well, the, the Syrians, the French got Lebanon and, and Syria, and they broke away a bit of what the Syrians, the Syrians basically consider, and still do, I think, that Lebanon is part of what should be a greater Syria. Um, the French created Lebanon partly to protect their own interests and partly to protect the Christian communities in Lebanon, who they felt would otherwise be submerged in, in a much larger Muslim 
population. The Syrians really never forgot this and have always felt a sense of bitterness about it, which I think helps to explain Syria's ambitions today. Um, Syrians, of course, also look southwards and consider that Palestine is properly Syrian as well. And so you have a Syria which really has never got over what happened at the end of the First World War. And Iraq, you mentioned, as being uh, a result of this 1919 treaty. Iraq, yes. Iraq was, was not really. It had never been a country. I mean, unless you go back to Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, which is a long, long way back. I mean, Iraq was, was a series of provinces of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, there was Mosul in the north, where the British suspected with good reason there was a lot of oil. And then in the middle, you had the whole area around Baghdad, the valleys of the Tigris and Euphrates. And then in the south, you had a whole province around Basra. The province to the south had always been heavily influenced by Shi'i Islam and, and had lots of connections with, with the Persians in Iran. Persia, as it was known in those days. The area around Baghdad tended to be fairly Arab, but when you got up to the north, you had a lot of Assyrians who were Christians, and you also had, of course, a Kurdish majority. And so what the British did for their own purposes was throw together three provinces which had very little in common, simply because they wanted a sort of block in that part of the Middle East to control the oil, to protect their routes out to India overland, and also to keep the French or anyone else from getting it. But what they did was create a country which really had very little of the bases of what we think make a country. There was no national sentiment to speak of in Iraq.